Hello listeners, welcome back to Explore. My name's Hannah and today I'm talking to PhD student Alex Smalley about virtual experiences of nature and how they can make us feel better. Hi Alex, it feels quite appropriate that we're having this conversation virtually given your research background. You've recently launched Soundscapes for Nature in collaboration with BBC Music. Can you tell us a bit about how that partnership came about? Hi Hannah, yeah I can. Yeah, I mean it's sort of arrived from a series of conversations that we were having with the BBC um, and BBC Music around this role particularly that soundscapes play in people's virtual experiences of nature. And really when we were having these conversations, we were very much thinking about the typical way that most people will consume nature content at home, which tends to be through these landmark nature documentaries. So that might be things like Planet Earth, Blue Planet. And of course, these series tend to focus very much on the stunning um, visual representation of nature. But as any sound recordist will tell you, the other sort of sensory dimension, which is so important to our experience, is the acoustic environment, the soundscape. But we didn't really have too much understanding of how we sort of design those soundscapes, those acoustic components of nature programs, so that we can enhance well-being. And that really represents a bit of a focus shift in terms of natural history programming typically aiming to educate and to fascinate people and actually we had some early data to suggest that actually people were starting to watch particularly in lockdown starting to watch nature documentaries to get their nature fix to use them for therapeutic purposes it's funny you talk about lockdown so i was going to say you've obviously spent a number of years researching this area but how important is it that this work is sort of launching and landing now that people are in lockdown? Yeah, it's an unexpected turn of events, I would say. You know, when we started out with this research more generally, which actually to some extent was started by um, my academic supervisor, Dr. Matthew White, and someone he worked very closely with, Professor Mike DePledge, you know, a decade ago, when they started to think about using virtual experiences of nature as therapeutic interventions almost in their own right so a lot of our understanding for how nature impacts things like stress reduction or psychological restoration um, actually comes from laboratory studies which use these digital proxies of nature to simulate essentially contact with nature in the real world and matt and mike 10 years ago started to think about the kind of ways in which these experiences could almost, you know, be harnessed and bring some of those therapeutic benefits to people who, who can't otherwise get outside. And, and as a population, a target population for an intervention like that, they and certainly I were very much thinking about older people who are in care homes and have very limited access to outdoor environments or people in very clinical settings who might be recovering from major surgery. But what is to some extent really important is that over the last year, we've all had an experience of what that's like, what it's like to be stuck at home, to have very limited access to outdoor environments. So it's no longer an abstract concept or something which might be happening to someone else. I think everyone's had an insight into what that might feel like. And so therefore to the possible importance of research like this. Mm. Has it changed your thinking or led to any new developments, the impact of our current situation? 
Yes, it has. I mean, to some extent, you know, I think most PhD students will find this through the course of their studies that you set out thinking you're going to answer one question and actually the landscape changes or events mean that you have to refocus. And certainly a large portion of what I was planning on doing was going to be with people, it was going to be in the laboratory with relatively small samples, you know, anywhere between 50 and 100 people and watching very closely how they responded to the kinds of things that we were interested in. And of course, that hasn't been possible for a year now. And that's meant actually I had to refocus to some extent my expectations, but also the kind of approaches that I was able to use. And that meant that we moved our studies online. So the drawback is you can't you know, take these lovely physiological measures. You can't watch how people respond over time. But what you can do is get an insight to some extent at a population level you're having thousands upon thousands of people take part in these experiments so actually what we lose in terms of close-up insight we're gaining a much broader picture and being able to look for and spot certain trends in the way people um, respond are you able to share what sort of results you've had coming back so far and what learnings you've taken from them so i'm in possibly an unenviable position no i shouldn't say that I'm in the luxurious position, if you like, of having too much data. So our first study that we ran as part of a collaboration with BBC Radio 4 and the BBC Natural History, and it looked at people's responses to soundscapes of nature. Um, and we had over 8,000 people take part in that. That was called the Forest 404 experiment. And we're about to submit the first research paper for peer review from that study. And so I can't really give you too much, much of an insight until that's published. Other than to say, perhaps, the sort of tease would be what was profound in that data set is the way that memories seem to exert this really strong moderating influence on people's responses to the soundscapes of the natural world. So lived experiences come through from that study as something which looks like being very important. The second study that we ran very much focused back on the visual component, started to look at the way that people might value what we call ephemeral phenomena, a wonderful term, which essentially reflects these memorable moments that happen with our encounters in nature. So, so how people react to scenes that might include a sunrise, a sunset, a sudden rainbow, these kind of things which don't last for very long, but which might come to define our encounters and our memories with nature. We had 3,000 people take part in that. Our current study, which you alluded to at the start, which is looking at this sort of very rich digital experiences of nature, which fuse both the sounds of nature as well as with these striking visuals. I don't think I'll be giving too much away to say that we've had well over 5,000 people to part in that in the first week. So I'm sort of in this phase where we've gone crazy in terms of data collection, and then the next 12 months will very much be deep in the analysis phase and starting to make sense of what we're seeing. Is there a phase you prefer? Do you prefer the analysis the or seeing the results come in? I think the wonderful thing about research is that you get to do all of those things. So I have I take a huge amount of pleasure in sort of devising these questions that we're going to look at. And of course, that's not just me doing that on my own. That's me working with public engagement groups, for example, the health and environment public engagement group at, at the medical school. That's working with people, producers, say, at 
the BBC, programme makers, sound recordists, people who are already in the real world thinking about how they deliver the virtual experiences of nature to people, sometimes with well-being gains in mind, sometimes with much more creative out outcomes in mind. So coming up with the sort of questions that haven't been answered yet is immense fun and immensely exciting. And then of course the design and rollout of an experiment is equally exciting because, you know, just to use the most recent example, we've worked with, you know, Chris Watson, possibly the world's foremost, most renowned wow. natural, natural sound recorders. We've worked with Nainita Desai, a BAFTA award-winning film composer with incredible digital, digital animator, as well as you know, production teams across the whole of BBC Music um, to create some of these things. So they're incredibly rich, transdisciplinary conversations. And we, you know, the research is very much informed by so many perspectives that, that absolutely enrich it that you couldn't I don't think just get from from an academic angle but then I also love the data analysis being buried in the data applying you know applying and learning to some extent new statistical techniques to try and spot trends so so for me I think you know getting to do a little bit of everything is the absolute pinnacle of you know of, of a job really. That was a very diplomatic answer where you didn't quite land on either side of the fence. <laughs> very good. I was going to ask you what brought you to this area? Was it the well-being or was it the nature? What attracted you most? I think I was incredibly fortunate to work with you know a truly inspirational bunch of researchers at the European Centre for Environment and Human Health and, and, and I've worked there for the last 10 years in varying capacities but working across you know really broad range of projects helping to communicate the science um, that the researchers there are doing and of course they're very much focused on these links between environment and health and you know it's very hard not to be sort of swept along by their enthusiasm by the excitement of discovery and I found after five or six years of doing that work that I very much sort of wanted my own research. I suppose I've always been innately connected to nature. I've always spent a lot of time in natural environments um, and finding a way to evidence that has been very exciting. But it, without doubt, I am only doing this because of the people I've had the benefit of working with for the last 10 years. Is there a soundscape which particularly speaks to you? I live very close to the ocean. And so I'm very used to hearing, you know, the many geysers and the changing states of the ocean, whether that's calm, lapping waves, or almost the white noise of a raging, you know, winter storm. And that's something that in my childhood I very much gravitated towards. But I also spent a lot of time when I was younger fishing in freshwater lakes, you know, the crack of dawn, listening to wood pigeons and woodpeckers and blackbirds and robins and wrens um, and, you know, all these typical English hedgerow passerine birds. And so whenever I hear anything like that, um, I'm instantly taken back to these fond memories. Equally, the soundscape of things like thunder, uh, you know, that the, the really deep, low frequency rumble that you you viscerally feel in your chest mm. um i think something like that which you know beyond evoking a sense of calm actually can 
can rouse a feeling of awe inside me. Um, that's certainly something very interested in in listening to more, but also learning more about people's responses to to that kind of stimulus. It's funny, even just describing those sounds, I was picturing them. And then with the pictures, the scenes in my mind, it's almost like a breath passing through you. I particularly resonate with the ocean. I've not met anyone who doesn't feel calm by the ocean or listening to it. And it would be really fascinating to find out more about why that is. Have you got any inklings? Well, you, yeah, you touch on a really interesting point there because very much the way that our responses to the sights and to some extent the sounds of nature have been framed, have been framed in this what we'd call biophilic response. The fact that we're hardwired to respond to safe, you know, environmentally rich, verdant scenes because the people who did that in our very early development as sapiens, they were more likely to survive. And so that we should be sort of almost genetically programmed to find some of these sights and sounds therapeutic healing because they allowed us to survive and thrive uh, early in our development as a species but you know as we both almost just mentioned actually we know that the sort of cultural and the cultural attachments the memories that we form are also incredibly important and so I think there's probably a mix of factors going on there. I wonder if having spent so much time in the research and analysing it has taken away any of the pleasure of the sounds? Yeah, it's a fantastic question. And there are certainly have been times in the last couple of years where I might have gone down a dark data hole, you know, and spent several days just with music in my ears and staring at a programming screen of numbers that I have to remember actually what we're talking about. You know, it's very easy almost to lose sight of the fact that we're talking about people's experiences in nature, their rich multi-sensory experiences and attachments. And to some extent, you can only really build that down to numbers. And then of course, there's an amazing field of rich qualitative work, which is looking very much at the way um, people contextualize these kinds of experiences rather than trying to reduce them to statistical trends. But Whenever I feel like that, I either just stop and, you know, take a step outside and listen to a blackbird on a roof, or sometimes I've actually, you know, if that's not possible, just hit play on one of the natural soundscapes we've been working with, and that suddenly brings it all home. So actually, I'd say the opposite. It's actually, it's, it's those things that have been able to ground me and remind me why I'm doing what I'm doing, rather than diminish it at all. That's great. I'm glad to hear that it's not taking that away from you. This is such a positive, uplifting project, but have there been any challenges or considerations which you've had to make? I think one of the very fair criticisms that is often made of a focus on virtual nature is that, well, what, what, what do we hope to do with this? Is this a dangerous proposition? Because we already know that we have increasing urbanization, increasing disconnection from the natural world. And if we continue to sort of investigate and to some extent, you know, use the horrible word, optimize these virtual experiences of nature, will people come to experience the natural world through a screen or through a set of headphones or a VR headset rather than going out and, you know, seeking these experiences out in, in the real world? And 
I absolutely share that concern. And I think what I hope is that I'm very clear in the sense that what we're looking for is a way to try and capture, you know, these potentially therapeutic effects and bring them to people who simply can't get outside. That this would never be a surrogate, a replacement for encouraging people to go out and forge their own experiences and memories when they can. But I think to some extent, we also have to acknowledge that we have a younger generation who in many circumstances has already switched off. You know, researchers often talk about the extinction of experience, the fact that as we remove ourselves from contact with the natural world, we essentially, each generation tends to forget a little bit more, like to interact with it, what the changing of the seasons mean when uh, the natural environment is being degraded and, and to some extent not noticed. So can we use these digital encounters almost as a way to sort of try and still a new wave of curiosity so that people actually do then try and seek out, you know, some of these nature-based experiences in the real world, but also build an appreciation. And we know that when people are more connected to nature, they're more likely to adopt pro-environmental behaviors. So almost can we start to redress the balance a little bit as well as harness some of the therapeutic gains? So, you know, I, I would say that virtual nature at the moment feels like it's very in vogue, but at the same time, it, there's certainly um, obstacles to overcome in how we think about this as experiencing the natural world. How far do you think virtual nature can replicate real nature, as it were? I think we're not trying to view it as a replacement for contact with the natural world. You know, outdoor contact, if you like, simply because that it is this rich, multi-sensory experience. And it should be. There is something incredibly powerful about feeling the wind on your face, tasting the salt on your lips, feeling the cold and appreciating the way that those things change as well as the sights and the sounds. And really what we're trying to do is just bring almost like a small slice of that, if you like. And maybe that relates to my point around this not being viewed as a replacement for contact with nature, um, because essentially we wouldn't want to replicate it completely fully perhaps, so that we still left something out there. But there is also, you know, there certainly are people in the field who are thinking more and more about virtual reality technology and how that can start to replicate these feelings, especially these spatial feelings and using very clever acoustic design, start to create, you know, three-dimensional soundscapes uh, and how things like the olfactory system can be brought into those experiences. I think there's huge potential for that kind of technology actually to bring experiences to us that we wouldn't otherwise have. There's a wonderful example been created by a company called WeVR. It's called The Blue. You get to swim on a coral reef with, you know, an incredible bloom of jellyfish. You get to have an encounter with a blue whale. This thing is huge. It feels huge. I'm never going to scuba dive with a blue whale. Um, and yet I feel like I've had an insight into what that is like. And so to some extent, you could argue, well, you know, maybe the power of these virtual experiences to give us an insight into the awe of nature, the awe-inspiring potential of nature that otherwise it's very hard to seek out. That is very cool actually. I might have to go and check that out.
you know, I'd like to thank all of the people who have made this research possible, and that's people like Dr. Matthew White, Professor Laura Fleming, Emma Bland, you know, Judy Green, people at the Welcome Centre for Environment, the Welcome Centre for Cultures and Environments of Health. Academics aren't famed for their brevity, are they? Um, <laughs> as well as the as well as the European Centre for Environment and Human Health, and and everyone else along that journey who you know is making this research possible. Great. Well. Thank you to those people and to yourself for bringing this new experience of nature to us. I highly recommend checking it out. So thanks again, Alex. Speak to you later. Thanks, Anna.